First, I'd like to introduce myself to you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Colin Robeson. I'm a pastoral assistant here, and I generally work in congregational care, and I do hospital and home visits, and I also help coordinate our memorial services. I am a seminary student at Fuller Theological Seminary and am training to become a, a pastor with the hopes of being an army chaplain, and I am thankful for the opportunity to be able to talk with you guys today and to share the Word of God with you. You know, the funny thing is that when you're new to this, um, you do little things to prep yourself before you come up here. And so my thing is about five minutes ago, I give myself 60 seconds to go through everything that wrong that could happen. Um, I mean, we're talking things from the, the ceiling caving in to me doing a dive off the front end. Um, let me tell you the most ridiculous thing, that I would trip on my shoelaces. Because I look down, no laces. So I leave that to you. I read once that the goofy thing about the Christian faith is that you believe it and you don't believe it at the same time. And to be honest, there are some times where I'd have to agree. When I take a long look at what it is we claim to be true, I'm astounded. And I get on some levels why people think that Christians are crazy. I mean, we stand up here and we proclaim that we have an intimate and a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. We claim to know its origins. We claim to know its purpose. We claim that this creator, whom we call God, has made us in his image. And that he gives us protection and authority over the rest of creation. We claim that after we chose to go our own way and leave him, that he pursued us. First through our ancestors, the Israelites, whom he spoke to through judges and kings and prophets. And despite our ancestors' desire to go their own way and do what was right in their own eyes, he continued to pursue them. He continued to care for them. We claim that after they continued to ignore him, that he spoke to us, that he became like us, he lived among us, and he died for us. And if that doesn't sound too far-fetched, we go further. We go further to say that he died a brutal death on the cross, and then he rose from the dead. We claim that he is continuing to provide for us, that he will make good on his promise to restore the whole of creation, and that this will happen when he comes again. And by he, I mean the God of the universe bringing heaven with him. I mean, when you lay it all out like that, it can sound pretty fantastic. Yet we proclaim it as the truth. The hard thing is we can't prove this using any accepted method of science. Logically, it can put us, it's not a hard one, excuse me, it's not an easy one to prove as well. Philosophy has tried to be helpful to us, but it can only go so far to help us make our case. We have the Bible, a book that's been passed down for over 2,000 years, and it carries with it the the tradition of the church and how the church has chose to interpret it. So there it is. Crazy talk from what some may call a crazy book. And there are times when I'm talking about Jesus, who I do believe in, that I feel more like someone who is crazy than the sane and intelligent person I think that I am. But that's until I see God move. That's until I see God move in my life or in the lives of others. When I am a witness to the works of God, I come to this place where I cannot help but be convinced of what it is we proclaim. And despite the craziness of what we believe, I accept it on faith. And so that's what it comes down to. Faith. Sure, we do have the Bible, but it takes a certain amount of faith to accept that that's true as well. And I bring this all up because faith 
and the acceptance of faith are core issues for our passage today. Because here we meet Thomas, a devoted disciple of Jesus, and we are a witness, we are a witness to his disbelief and the encounter with Jesus that changes everything. But before we get too far into Thomas, we need to prep ourselves for the story that we're about to dive into. Where we we enter our scripture, where the, the disciples are mourning the loss of Jesus. It's not hard to imagine that they were grieving the loss of their friend, their mentor, their teacher, and also the man that they thought was the Messiah. In the midst of this, it's easy to imagine that they are trying to reconcile who they thought Jesus was and the fact that they had just watched him die. It's also easy to imagine that they were deeply afraid that as his principal followers, they might suffer a similar fate. Yet, in the midst of their fear, they've gathered for worship. Scripture tells us that on the first day of the week, which would have been the Sabbath, and also the first Easter, they've gathered together to be in community to worship God. But because of their fears of the Jews, they've they've gathered behind locked doors. Now, Mary Magdalene has already come to them. She's told them of her experience where Jesus appeared to her when she was outside of his empty tomb. And we're not exactly sure how they accepted her. But what we can infer from the locked doors is that news of his appearance has not removed their fears. So in the midst of their worship, Jesus appears to them. He walks through walls. He speaks to them, peace be with you. He sends them out into the world. He gives them the Holy Spirit and the power to forgive sin. This peace is understood as a state of freedom from inner anxiety or inner turmoil. And what we see him doing here is he is calling them out of their fears and into what he is doing in the world. This is huge. Because as we read this, it speaks to us as well. It reminds us, God meets us in our fear. God gives us the same peace. And along with that peace, he often calls for us to partner with what he is doing in the world. He calls us to speak that peace to others so that they might know a peace that surpasses all understanding and a peace that can calm even the deepest of fears. Now, immediately after this, our scripture relays to us that Thomas wasn't present with the rest of the disciples. We don't know why he wasn't there. We can imagine that maybe it was because he was so grieved and fraught from Jesus' death that he felt like he needed to be alone. We're not sure if there was another matter he needed to attend to, some job he was responsible for. But when you take in the details that this is the Sabbath— and that many things were prohibited on the Sabbath, like work, it's hard to imagine that Thomas wasn't present if for no other reason than he didn't want to be there. And what is clear is that when Thomas chose not to join the other disciples, he missed out on what Jesus was doing. First and foremost, he missed out on seeing the risen Christ. Second, he missed out on And he was not able to take part in what Jesus was doing in the midst of the worshiping community. 
And I think we need to stop and ponder this for a moment because this applies to us as well. When we gather in worship, we do so as a community. We come together as very different people from very different places to proclaim a common faith. And we do this because it's something we believe that God has called us to do, and it's a way in which we acknowledge that God works through the worshiping community. And the biblical witness is clear on both of these points. It tells us, it speaks to us, worship is not something that is done in isolation. And joining in worship is one of the obligations and responses we have to the gifts that God has given us. And when we fail to enter into worship, when we fail to gather with the community, we miss out. And you know, when we don't come to church and when we, we're busy and we have other things to do, we don't think that there might be some consequences for not joining, for not taking part. But here, when we look at the story with Thomas, we see that there are consequences. Jesus who had just died on the cross, revealed himself to the disciples. He walked through walls. He breathed the Holy Spirit on them, and he called them to partner with what he was doing in the world. And Thomas missed out on it. Reality is, when we're absent, we miss out too. We miss out on how God is moving in the lives of our brothers and sisters, and they miss out on what God is doing in our life. Now, please don't hear me say that God is limited to these walls. He certainly works outside of them, and he certainly works outside this time that we have set aside. But part of what you have to ask, and part of what you have to consider is, why do we build churches? Why do we have a space set aside called the sanctuary, where we meet God? Why do we hold worship services for the community if those services don't matter? You know, someone could say, well, it's just something you've been doing for a long time, and so you continue to do it because you like tradition. I don't think so. I think it's because to be a follower of Jesus Christ means that you need to be a part of the body that he has called us to, and that body is the church. I want to be fair here, though. There are times and places for solitude, times of private prayer, times where God meets us when we are outside of this body. But we need to remember that they are two different disciplines for two different purposes. And in addition, the scriptures and the witness of the church for the last 2,000 years have never understood any kind of private worship as a substitute for corporate worship. Now, I'm making a stand here and some of you might not appreciate it. But on Sundays, you need to be here. And not because we have a quota we want to fit. It's because this is what we've been called to do. But it's more than just coming in and sitting down. It's entering in. It's letting God speak to you. It's taking part in the work that God is doing here and in the world. This is how you answer the call that Jesus Christ has given you. But showing up is half of that. And I think we've lost some of this. It's an issue of maturity and discipleship that you are here. Because, and I'll say it again, when you aren't here, you miss out on what God is doing. And there are consequences for that. Now, I may sound preachy, and you may think, well, of course the pastor would say this. I'm not saying this chiefly for me. 
I'm saying this because this is what God has called us to. Because God wants to speak to you. And God has chosen to use the community to speak to us. And so I invite you as a follower of Jesus Christ to participate in the worshiping community. For Thomas, the consequence of not being here was he spent a week in disbelief. Because after Jesus appeared to the disciples, they come to him. They say, we have seen the Lord. And without skipping a beat, Thomas jumps in and says, no, unless I see the mark of the nail in his hands, unless I place my finger into that mark, unless I take my hand and place it in his side, I will never believe. I got to be honest, on the aside here, I'm a little grossed out by Thomas. I'm not the type of guy that's going to stick my hand into someone else's wounds. And so when I read this, I kind of think, literally, there has to be another way. Something else can happen here. I'm not Thomas, though. And Thomas's hyperbole aside, when we look at the Gospel of John, we see that Thomas is not someone who's going to be duped into believing some kind of lie. He is a very loyal and a clear-cut kind of guy. Earlier in the gospel, when Jesus wants to go visit his sick friend Lazarus in, Lazarus in Judea, where the last time he visited, he was almost stoned, Thomas is the one who jumps up and says, well, if you're going to go, we're going with you, because if you're going to die, we're going to be beside you. Another time, when Jesus is telling the disciples that he is going ahead of them to prepare a place in his father's house because it has many rooms, Thomas is the one who pipes up and goes, okay, But we don't know the way, so we don't know where you're going or how to get there. And because of that, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There is no other way to the Father except through me. And if for nothing else, I think we should be thankful to Thomas there. With all of this in mind, with understanding his loyal nature, his desire for clarity— It's not that surprising that he is not going to accept that the man he just watched die on the cross just appeared to his friends. It was crazy talk as far as he was concerned. And so he responded with an equally crazy statement. And I want to pause here because Thomas is often identified as doubting Thomas. I can't tell you how many people I told in the passage and we preaching on this week. Oh, the doubting Thomas story. But the reality is, if I were Thomas, I'd be a little frustrated because he's misunderstood here. He didn't doubt the resurrection. He simply didn't believe in it. Doubt is the feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Disbelief, on the other hand, is the inability or refusal to accept something as true. Now, you might be sitting there and thinking, this guy's splitting hairs, they're the same thing. But I think there's a huge distinction Think about the way we use doubt versus disbelief. Which, which is stronger force here? I doubt you or I disbelieve you? For me, it's disbelief. Doubt carries with it some inkling or indication that it could be true. Disbelief, on the other hand, is declarative. It's firm. So we should stop giving Thomas a bad rap here. He's, he wasn't a doubter. He was someone who simply did not believe in the resurrection. And as someone 
who was presented with what seemed like very conflicting data, because, I mean, let's be honest, dead people normally don't rise again. He chose not to believe. And then he presented the criteria by which he would believe. Now, when I look at his criteria, I, to be honest, I cannot help but think of the scientific empire we live in now that uses accepted methods to prove things. And by their result, we choose to believe in them and accept things as true or false. And I have some problem, problems with this kind of thinking, especially when it comes to faith. One, I can't tell you how many things we believe in but can't prove. Let's talk about love. It's an emotion that we all have, but it's not rational. And by that, I mean we actually feel it. I love my wife. I love her deeply. But if asked to quantify it, to weigh it, to measure it, I would struggle to do so. It's something I firmly believe, but I cannot prove it to you. And any proof that I would offer you would be subject to interpretation. Beauty is the same way. Try and give me a concrete definition of what beauty is, that I can weigh and I can measure it. I bet you if I get 100 people in the room and ask them what's beautiful, I'm going to get 100 different responses. We believe in beauty, but we can't prove it. I say this all to say there are plenty of things that are true that don't make sense. And I think that we should be careful before we equate proof and belief as the same thing. My second problem with this kind of thinking is that when you develop a, a set of criteria and then you impose that on something to assess whether it's true or false, you place yourself over and above whatever it is you're assessing. And this is fine. I mean, in a lot of ways, this works. If you're watching an episode of Mythbusters and they're trying to figure out if I drop a penny off the Empire State Building, am I going to kill someone? This is important things to know because people may want to do it. The answer is no. There's an issue with downdrafts and some other stuff, and so you can check it out later. <laughs> but this can get really, really problematic when we start to treat God like a myth to be busted. I say this to say because God is not something you prove. God is someone you believe in. And we have a problem with mixing proof and belief. Proof is the result of testing. Belief is the result of trusting. Now, they're really different things. But as I'm saying this, don't hear me say thinking's not important. There is a strong tradition within the church that says faith is seeking understanding which means we think about our faith. But I think it's very important to point out that proof and reason have never been at the center of what we believe. And while they may be a part of how some of us come to believe, how we process things, how we think through it, I don't think that that is how people come to faith. I think it's because they've had an encounter with Jesus Christ that has compelled them to utter something that would seem crazy to anyone else. You know, when I try to figure out what does it look like to trust God, in some ways I think it's like being in a burning building and jumping out of the fifth story into the arms of someone who will catch you. The scenario fits a little bit. Think about it. 
we believe creation is distorted, that there is something that needs to be saved out of it. And Jesus Christ is calling us out, that he has promised to catch us so that we don't go down with the building. And the reality is once you jump, it doesn't matter how much you trust that the person below will catch you. What matters is that they actually catch you. We trust in Jesus. We jump into Jesus' arms. And if you want proof, I don't think he's dropped anyone yet. Now, as I say this, I'm not saying that when we jump into Christ's arms, it means we get a life free of pain or that we get a life free of worries or consequences. What we're promised when we enter into a life with Jesus Christ is a life in which we live it before God and where God hears our prayers. He, he walks alongside us and cares for us in the midst of life. Now, as we move forward, we see that a week later, the disciples have gathered again for worship and that Thomas has gathered with them. And I want to point out here that the disciples didn't kick Thomas out because he disagreed with them. They were confident enough in what they had seen and in what they had experienced with Jesus Christ that they chose to let him work this out in the midst of their fellowship. And this is important because it's what communities do for one another. They bear each other's burdens and they care for each other. And it speaks loudly that Thomas felt like he could gather with them. So here they are. They've gathered for worship. And again, Jesus walks through the walls. He immediately says to them, Peace be with you. He then turns to Thomas and says, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. In essence, what Jesus is doing is he is saying to him, If this is what it's going to take for you to believe, then so be it. And at first, this is a little shocking because you're sitting here and you're thinking, this is the God of the universe and Thomas wants to stick his hands in his wounds. But then if you take into account who Jesus is, we realize that this is what he's been doing the entire time. He has been condescending himself to our level his entire ministry. It's one of the ways he shows us that he loves us. Now, I use the word condescend intentionally. And please don't hear it in that you've been condescended to and when people have treated you poorly or not respected you in how they've interacted with you. I use the word condescend because I think it's one of the best ways that we can give proper explanation to what happens when the creator of the universe comes down, lives among us, and offers to die for us. In fact, this is how the Gospel of John opens to us. It says, The word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. I personally like how the message translates it. Where it says, the word became flesh and blood. And moved into the neighborhood. God comes to us. He condescends himself so that we might know him and be saved. And it's what he does because he loves us. So, from Jesus' perspective... Not a huge deal. Because all he's concerned about is that Thomas would believe in him and have life through him. He recognizes that Thomas is in very deep disbelief. And he calls him out of it. He exhorts him strongly saying, Do not disbelieve, 
but believe. And here I want to point out, some of your Bibles may say, do not doubt, but believe. I think the best translation of the word from the Greek is disbelief. It uses the word pistos, but it's apistos, which means the opposite of pistos. Pistos is faith. It's saying, do not become a disbeliever, but believe. Jesus knows who Thomas is, and he knows that Thomas does not believe in the resurrection. And so he has appeared to him to say, believe in me. Put your hands here. Do what you need to do, but believe. And what I find interesting, though, is this scripture gives no account that Thomas reached forward and touched Jesus. And what's interesting is that it gives us all these other details, that there's locked doors, that Jesus walks through the walls, it tells us how many days. I mean, there's a lot of detail here to get sense of what's going on here. So we have to infer that had Thomas touched him, we would know. But instead, Thomas exclaims, My Lord, my God. Thomas has witnessed the risen Christ. And as a result, he cannot help but believe and utter what he found impossible before. Now, instead of dismissing what he thought was crazy talk, he's speaking it himself. Thomas, like the other disciples, is now a believer. Now, this is a huge deal for Thomas. I mean, he's a believer. It's also a big deal for the narrative in the Gospel of John. You see, up until this point, Jesus has been addressed as rabbi, teacher, master, and Lord. And when you hear Lord, we need to remember that during this period, that that was a common title given to people who had power and authority over someone. So we need to—we shouldn't confuse the use of Lord here with the Lord. The point I'm trying to make here is that we don't see Jesus recognized as God— up until this point. Thomas is the first person to recognize that Jesus Christ is God. Now, I'm sure this was assumed by the the other disciples when he appeared to them. But the writer of this gospel has chosen to use the encounter with Thomas to make it very clear to us that the Jesus of history and Jesus Christ are one in the same. He uses Thomas the most ardent disbeliever who dismissed his appearance the first time as crazy talk to show us that Jesus is who he says he is and that it is is in him that we should believe. In fact, the entire gospel has been leading up to this point. That Greek word for belief, pistos, is used seven times in Luke. It's used nine times respectively in Matthew and Mark. It is used over 90 times in the Gospel of John. This entire Gospel has been written so that you and I might believe. In fact, verse 30 and 31 confirm this, where they tell us that while Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, that the things that are written have been done so so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. You know, as I was thinking about what I should preach today and what I should share with you, I couldn't help 
but thinking about my own journey to, to believing. I didn't grow up in a house where we went to church. I went to Sunday school when I slept at my grandma's house, but I didn't really start going until sixth grade, and that was to youth group. And a full disclosure, I really went because there were girls I liked there. <laughs> but I also went because as a kid, I struggled to fit in. And for whatever reason, church was a place that I felt like I fit. And at some point between 6th and 7th grade, I became a believer. I was baptized. And I think a large part of my draw to faith was the community. And this community happened to be about Jesus. So I was too. But as I got older, things changed. My youth group leader moved, and I began to struggle. And looking back on it, I can see that I was really more invested in the group than I was Jesus, and so I drifted away. And it wasn't until a few years later, during my junior year of high school, that I really gave much thought to God again. Now, I have to admit that in those years, I kind of went, went away from what it was that I should have been doing. And during my junior year, I was doing a lot of partying. And I was out at a party, and we'd run out of beer. And so I went with some friends to get more, and they were driving, and I was lying in the back of this pickup truck. And we were in the back, we were in the middle of the desert, and we'd been hiding, so it was kind of a long drive. And during that, I was looking up at the night sky. It was a cloudless night. And I remember as I looked at those stars, I had one of the strongest feelings. And it was one of those feelings that you know can only come from God. As I looked up at that sky, I felt with this force that there was a God, that he was up there, and that he loved me. And you know, at first I'd really tried to dismiss it because I was on a beer run, and I didn't think thinking about God was the most appropriate thing. <laughs> problem is I couldn't shake the feeling. For weeks, I kept ending up in these conversations about God. I kept thinking about him and that night. And so at some point, I ended up back at church. But this time, things were different. Sure, I still liked the community, and I still really liked feeling like I fit in. But this time, I was there because I believed with a conviction that I'd never had before. As I think about that, it makes me realize God meets us in the weirdest of places and in the oddest of ways. For some, it may be something more run-of-the-mill. It was a youth group retreat or a mission trip or a revival. Others of you, it may be this gradual shift that happened over time. Whatever it was, belief comes from an encounter with God. And as we look at this encounter with Thomas, we see that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, he speaks peace into our lives. He breathes the Holy Spirit on us, and he sends us out to give that peace to others. He gives us the community of faith as a family to participate in. And most importantly, he gives us faith. Faith is a gift from God, and it's a gift that makes the crazy make sense. It's how we stand up and we affirm what it is we believe. It's what I have to tell myself when I feel crazy speaking the truth. Now, when it comes to believing, I know that for me, and I'm sure for you, there will be or 
there has been some point in your life where you've doubted or you've not believed. It may, be, it may have been doubt. It may have been disbelief. What it is doesn't matter. What's important for you to know is that Jesus Christ has condescended himself for you, for me, and for this community. And he will do so again. Whether it is through a friend speaking peace into our lives, whether it is the Holy Spirit meeting us, or something else, Christ will pursue you. You know, in a few moments, we're going to stand, and we're going to affirm our faith. And this is something that Christians have been doing since the very beginning. It's a way that we assert our identity as the people of God. And, you know, sometimes it's done as a way to stand up to competing ideas that might lead us away from God. Other times it's done to remind us of what we believe so that when we struggle, we can hold on to it. Whatever the reason is, articulating what we believe in is a very important thing. And by looking at Thomas, we see the impact of these statements. They define who we are and who we're about. So as we do this, I'd like to ask you to take this time to ponder what it is you believe. It's something I think we fail to do. I know I do. I don't sit down and think very often, what is it that I believe? But it's an important task. And if it feels appropriate, use this time to reaffirm what you believe. To reaffirm that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. Some of you may be new here and have not proclaimed any sense of belief before. And if you're hearing God speak to you, or you do hear God speak to you, when he does, use that time. Use that time to believe in him and ask him to be the Lord of your life. And if you choose to do that today, there are people here who are available after the service to pray with you. And I would encourage you to go and introduce yourself to them and allow them to greet you and welcome you into the family of God. Others of you may still be on the fence. You may be unsure of, sure of what it is you believe. Or you may be sitting there and thinking, that guy's crazy. Which is fine. Because you need to know that no matter the difference, there is always a place for you here. Sure, we're not going to be ashamed of who we're about. But we will also respect you in the journey that you're on. And in the meantime, we will believe for you. With that, I'd like to ask you to stand and recite with me the affirmation of faith that you see on the screen. This is the good news which we have received and in which we stand and by which we are saved if we hold it fast, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared first to the woman, then to Peter, and to the twelve, and then to many faithful witnesses. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus Christ is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is our Lord, here and our God. Please be seated. May this be so in your life. 
May the God of the universe that gives peace to us give peace to you. May you take part in and be a part of the family of believers and the community of God. May God work through you and send you out into the world and give that peace to others. And most of all, may God give you the gift of faith. May it sustain you in times of of trouble and in times of joy. May you feel the presence of God. And may you always have faith that he gives. May that be our prayer today. Amen.